You're listening to Chewing the Fat On Demand. So you're tired, you're sitting in your car, and you're thinking, I'm just going to listen to Chewing the Fat and relax a little bit before I go back out and shop. Or you just got home, you're tired, you've had it with people, you just wanted to sit down and listen to Chewing the Fat, but you didn't get all the gifts that you wanted and you're not sure what to get, everybody. Shop.theblaze.com. Shop.theblaze.com. Take care of the people you love with a Chewing the Fat with Jeff Fisher coffee mug. There's nothing more in life than the thank you and the hug and the kiss that you'll receive from the person you give the Chewing the Fat with Jeff Fisher coffee mug to. Shop.theblaze.com. Happy Black Friday. Um, Since it is Black Friday, I thought I would, you know, I'm kind of liking... I'm not going to do this forever. I'm just teasing. But I'm kind of liking the, uh, you know, the theme shows. So, uh, you know, this is going to be uh, Black Friday Animal Day. Uh, just uh, we're going to cover you with the animal stories. You know, what started me thinking about this was Donald Trump. Yes, the president, Donald Trump, getting in trouble for slapping the back of a horse's butt. And I said slapping. It was really padding the back of a horse's butt when they were dropping off the Christmas tree. And they got the big Clydesdales, the giant horses there pulling the Christmas tree. It's a cute, it's a whole big to do. And so our president comes up and he taps the, and I say, Pat, at first I said slap, then I went tap. Now I'm saying just pats the horse on the butt. You know, the big old horse there. Yeah. Yeah. And he gets in trouble for that. Can we give the guy a little bit of a break, please? Just a little. No one walks up to a horse and doesn't just pat it. It's not anything other than just loving the animal. Can we please just give the guy a break? And then we saw uh, reports of a camel in Pennsylvania. It was storming and snowing and people were posting on uh, social media. Some of them I can't air for you uh, on, on my podcast, but people are driving by going, is that an effing camel? You know, that's one of the things that disappoints me with a lot of social media today, that some of the live shots that we get of stuff going on on the interstate, everybody's got to use just their, just using naughty language, and I don't like it. Can we clean it up just a little bit? But then I read an article that said, if you swear, you have a higher IQ. Did you know that? So go ahead and swear. I don't care. I don't. Do I care? Of course, you're going to beep that. So there was a camel from some petting zoo that got stuck uh, in the back as they were moving. <laughs> it's snowy. You see this camel along the highway, you would be, uh, you would be a little, is that a camel? Holy cow. And you know my experience with camels. When I was in Israel, you know, we stopped along the side of the road because these Bedouins were giving camel rides. And the camel was not happy about me coming up to him. You're going to put, he wants to ride me? No. And the Bedouin was having none of it. His owner was having none of it. You want to talk about being mad at somebody for slapping an animal? Talk to the guy that owned the camel in Israel. Because that camel, it didn't matter what that camel wanted to do. I was going to, that, the fat man was going to get on him and ride him. And that's exactly what happened. 
Then we have uh, animal control officers uh, helping uh, helping people catch the loose chicken in Maine. You ever seen a loose chicken in the city? This is in Maine. And uh, there was a chicken running around and people were, you know, people were, I don't know why people get so scared. It's a chicken. It's just a chicken. Leave them alone. But uh, so the nearby citizens were all freaked out and tried to wrangle the bird. And uh, uh, so finally an animal control officer came and, you know, caught the chicken. When I was living in New Jersey uh, for a summer, I lived in uh, Weehawken, New Jersey uh, for the summer. Uh, and I lived like right across from right, right there at the beginning of the Lincoln Tunnel on the New Jersey side, right. So we were worked in Manhattan, and so the I took a bus into the city every day, and the bus stop was right close to where my apartment was, and uh, it was the last stop in Jersey, and then the first stop was in the at the at the bus terminal in Manhattan. So it was just a quick ride, but. I wa- to walk to the bus stop from where I was living. There's there was you know a wall and a, a hill. It was New Sweehawken, New Jersey. You're built in a little giant mound of dirt, and there was a chicken. Used to be up in that up in this brush, and he would be up in the brush, and he would come out and he would look at you like you're gonna feed me, you're gonna feed me. No, okay, I'm back in the brush. You're going to feed me. You're going to feed me. No, I'm back in the brush. And he would hop down and try to get food from people's trash. And he would hop down. People would feed him. Then he'd be back up in the trash. That's a chicken. Don't worry about chickens roaming around your neighborhood. They're just a chicken. And I've been thinking about, you ever think about raising chickens in the city? I don't know. That's that's a little questionable. People get a little wound up when you start raising chickens and stuff. They're noisy and dirty, nasty. In North Carolina, an animal shelter says uh, they're always looking for people to come and adopt animals that they have. That's what animal shelters do. But there's a special bond between a donkey and an emu that uh, they're saying, uh, look, um, it's going to make adoption difficult. And uh, because these uh, two animals, the donkey and the female emu, um, do not want to be apart. And they don't want to be. Uh, they want to be together. When you start taking them apart, they freak out. So uh, either you take the donkey and the emu, or, I mean, it doesn't say this in the story, but what happens at adoption centers when animals aren't adopted? Zzzt. Goodbye. So it's going to be going to be a sad day when the emu and the donkey have to. Have to bite it on the same day. <laughs> what else? I mean, I've got animal stories here. It's full of animal stories. Bird rescue seeks owner. Oh yeah, you saw the pigeon this weekend that's got the it's got the bling on it hanging. <laughs> you ever been I got no pigeon stories too. You know, when I was a little kid, I worked for a guy, Mr. Uh Mr. Washington. He was such a good guy. And he was, at the time, he was a really old man. And I know that sometimes when you're kids, people seem older than they were. But he was from, he fought in World War One. He was a railroad guy. He had show ponies. But what he did in World War One was he's the, he was the pigeon guy. He sent messages 
with pigeons. So he had all these trained pigeons. And he still had them up above his garage. He had this huge garage, like this huge four-car garage. But upstairs is where he kept all his pigeons. So, I mean, he, we always had to take care of those stupid pigeons. What did I call him? Mr. Washington. His name was Wallace. Mr. Wallace. Not Washington, Mr. Wallace. I love that old guy. Uh, he was one of my first jobs, actually, going to the fairgrounds to clean out the stalls. He had rented the stalls for his show horses. And I remember him saying to me, and we used to play football in the yard next to his house and stuff. So, you know, I used to talk to him. He used to watch us. And, and In today's world, would you let your son, you know, I was, I don't know how old I was, but would you let your son go to the fairgrounds with this old guy all by himself? Probably not. Not today. In today's world, you wouldn't. Although, it'd probably be fine. Really, but just what we know in the news, no way, right? So I go home and I ask my dad, hey, uh, Mr. Wallace wants me to, uh, you know, go to the fairgrounds and clean the horse stalls out and he's going to pay me. And my dad's like, and why aren't you there now? I mean, so every Saturday, man, bright and early, shoveling out horse stalls and hosing down horses cleaning up horse crap all Saturday, wheelbarrowing it in and out, new straw, cleaning those horses for Mr. Wallace. But it was a job, man. He paid me. I loved it. Now back to the bedazzled, vest-clad pigeon that nobody knows who belongs to. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's all blinged out and they don't know who it belongs to. I'm guessing that it belonged to a female who possibly, I don't know, maybe once ruled the world. We had an opportunity to talk to Kara Cooney, who wrote a book called When Women Ruled the World, Six Queens of Egypt. She's an Egyptologist. This is for National Geographic. And I thought, you know what? Women still rule the world. Um, these these stories of the six queens of Egypt are kind of lost stories, but it's fascinating to hear about it and see what it was like for them as rulers. Kara Cooney, author of uh, When Women Ruled the World. That's kind of misleading because uh, there are many of us in the world, uh, and unfortunately I am in that list, that believe that women still do rule the world, Kara. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, you know, I've been married, and uh, my, the woman in my life uh, rules the world. Uh, although I know what you're yes, talking about. Yes, but does she, so, so essentially it's when women rule as formal uh, leader yes, of the state. Absolutely. So I'm looking for when women can lead the whole show. <laughs> so uh, this, your your idea is the six queens of Egypt, which is fascinating to me. Um, Egypt provided uh, access and power to these women, unlike uh, other places in the world for years, didn't they? Yeah, it's it's a strange thing that in ancient Greece or Rome, where you have more even distribution of power and more competition, if one man falls, another man takes his place. Right. But in Egypt, where you have this authoritarian regime of dynastic families, very, very um, 
inbred form of power, the, the female in that family can step in in a crisis and, and really make sure that the patriarchal system continues. And really, that's the tragedy of the whole book. Yes, women did rule the world regularly and systematically in ancient Egypt, but they did so only because there was an authoritarian regime that that made it possible. So the more unequal the society, the more possible it is in the ancient world for a woman to gain this kind of power. Hmm. Uh, you know, we hear so many stories uh, of women, uh, you know, ruling different parts or different businesses. And it seems like today it's such a surprise that uh, women are, uh, you know, it's like, a oh my gosh, women are actually smart enough to do this. Uh, yeah, duh. Uh, I, what, 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 can we, what can we learn from that as an example? I mean, in today's world where we can maybe realize that, you know, uh, women can actually do this. Duh. You know, it's pretty crazy, right? If it feminism is. is nothing more than 50% of the population should have 50% of the power, why do we have 6% female CEOs of Fortune 500 type companies? You know, it's, it's, um, it's pretty crazy. When I speak on this in public, you know, I have to establish that women do not rule the world. And I show uh, military slides, I show economy, I show um, po- political discussions, you know, these are the numbers. And, and break it down for those who think that we're making such great strides. Not that the elections, the recent elections, don't improve things for women, but we're still not at 25% in the United States Congress yet. And um, there's a long way to go. And I'm also cognizant as a historian, having written this book, each time a woman rose to power, she she got a pushback after her death, or, or the sisterhood, I should say, got a pushback. There was a response, and we have to expect a response um, here in, in this case as well. When, when women make great strides, there will be somebody to, to push back in some way. We have to expect it. Well... I mean, we also have an idea that, uh, you know, there are times when women decide that they want to be mothers and they want to be homemakers. And we, you know, shouldn't make them feel bad about that. Uh, you know, that's their decision. right? No, and I couldn't have written this book without having given a birth, given birth myself. You know, I breastfed for two years. That's crazy. Who does that? And I, I saw all the ups and downs of my own hormones and I was postpartum, everything, depressed, anxious, all, all the things. And I, I think that a feminism absent of biology is ridiculous. I think a feminism absent of the the idea that women can think differently than men, obviously on a gradient, you know, there are more, there are masculinized women and there are feminized men. But, mm-hmm. but I, I think that I couldn't have understood how vulnerable my body is in comparison to a man's had I not gone through that process and how much my um, hormones tether me to the world in a way that uh, a man's hormones don't necessarily do. Even if a man decides that he wants to call himself a woman uh, in today's world, um, it doesn't make it so. Um, Well, here, this is really interesting because it's culture that gives us the binary between male and female. And if you look at the biology, it's a mess. 
you know, there are masculinized men and there are feminized women biologically and there's intersex and there's all kinds of crazy chromosomal number counts. And it's a much more complicated situation when you're actually looking at the biology. It's our cultural understanding that says, no, you have to pick you're a man or you're a woman. And so the whole transgender argument that we're having right now, it's very interesting, but it's, it's in some ways a nature versus nurture discussion. And if you talk to hunter gatherer communities, people who live the way human beings have lived for hundreds of thousands of years, they wouldn't have the same problems with it. They know that some people are born, some men are born in a more feminized way and vice versa. And that this is an expected part of, of nature. And they, they are familiar with mammals and know that there's many different ways to express a, a biological sexuality. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a little more unclear, but for these Egyptian women, yes. they're we'll, we'll dealing with we'll binary. They're Egyptian dealing now. with you're either a woman or you're a man, and they're right. dealing with a man's world. And right. in ancient Egypt, when you're trying to create power for one dynasty, you've got to give it to a man just in terms of basic biological economy. A woman can only produce one baby a year, a man 365. If I'm risk-averse and I want my dynasty to continue, I'm going to give the man the power and surround him with females, with a harem of females, so that he can make sure that there's going to be an heir to the throne. Right. That's unequal from the get-go. So uh, in your book, uh, Kara Cooney, we're talking to uh, in her uh, new novel, uh, When Women Ruled. And uh, there's six uh, stories in here uh, of queens or when women, you know, rulers. And uh, tell me, uh, tell me a, a quick little bit about the Queen of Blood. Oh, Mernath, uh, Dynasty One. It's so interesting that female rule makes its appearance at the very moment that divine kingship makes its appearance in Egypt in Dynasty One. Wow. So in Dynasty One, the the kings are, are trying to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are God kings that cannot be questioned. Right. And throughout this dynasty, when the king dies, they took members of their family and court and sacrificed them and then laid them to rest around the king in his burial. The method of death is not known because the skeletons have all been found, though buried at the same time, in a fetal position without any sorts of marks of death. So maybe poison of some kind or maybe they were strangled. We don't know. But hundreds and hundreds of people lost their lives when the king died. And Mernath, this woman who stepped in when her husband died unexpectedly, leaving her with a young son on whose behalf she had to rule, she would have been the one who decided who lived and who died, who accompanied her dead husband into the ground and into the afterlife. And her young son would have witnessed all of this. His first moment as king king would have been a Jonestown-like affair of of sadness and grief and keening. And uh, it's um, an extraordinary way to start out Egyptian divine kingship. Boy, no kidding. And it also leaves uh, uh, twisted. You talk about the sadness and and so forth with that. But it also leads uh, the little one to believe that he can do anything because it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, yeah. he's the king. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And he, he ruled. He had the longest reign of any king in Dynasty One. And 
And but but the Egyptian king, the divine king, is meant to believe that he can do anything. He is right. he is a god king, and um, you, we we see the the latitude people with absolute power uh, take. It does corrupt. We we do know <laughs> this. Yeah, that's an amazing yeah. thing. All right. So with uh, as you uh, went through uh, these dynasties, uh, what did they all you know have aside from being uh, women? Um, what did they have in common? There was a crisis of some kind. There was some reason to invite the woman in. And they took so it. So Mernath, she's de- in Dynasty 1, she's dealing with a son who's too young to rule. He can't make the decisions on his own. We don't know his age, but he was too young. Right, right. Sobek of Dynasty 12, there was no one left to rule. Maybe because of a very inbred dynasty riddled by incest, but she was the last one right, left. And, right. and they allowed her to take the throne. In Dynasty 18, Hatshepsut is dealing with a situation very similar to Mernate's. She's got a two-year-old on the throne, and she's serving as his queen regent. And when the kid is nine years old, she decides to have herself crowned alongside him. The reasons for that are shrouded from our view. It's very interesting to see her ambition push itself forward there. In Dynasty 18, Nefertiti, she's ruling alongside a husband who is a religious fanatic, and she is a co-king alongside him. And when he dies, it's arguably Nefertiti who has to put all the pieces of the yeah. shattered reign back together. Tawasrit of Dynasty 19 is there in another crisis, dealing with civil war, ruling alongside a child king, taking the throne eventually herself after that child's death. And then there's Cleopatra. Ooh, how did and the, the crisis child, did... can't get much bigger than Rome's ultimate invasion of Egypt and the taking of Egypt into its empire. And she right. fights to the end, but she does lose, as so many other women lost fighting the voracious Roman Empire. But it's crisis that allows these women to come in. Something's gone wrong. And each of these women acts to protect the patriarchy and the larger the larger dynastic line. And they, and at, on the same uh, token as taking over from the crisis, they uh, actually, it appears, you know, once you take the bull by the horns, uh, you love it. And that power does end up corrupting all, as you said earlier. Um, you know, when so the women, actually there's less evidence of that happening. Really? And partly because those women who were so successful are erased from our memory. Hatshepsut ruled 22 years altogether, did everything right, left Egypt better than she found it, and we can't even pronounce her name. So the successful female leaders, I don't think they were removed from our historical view because their power corrupted. At least there's no evidence of it. They were removed because they didn't fit the patriarchal succession and because their success could be claimed by by others who who ruled after. And so her names and images were erased, and those feats that she had achieved were given to others, and everyone wants to be successful, so that was easily done. But a cautionary tale like like Cleopatra, you know, Shakespeare's written plays about her, and we can remember her as as um, the reason that women don't rule. That's that's really why her failure has been so aggrandized, and why we can pronounce her name so easily in comparison to Hatshepsut's. Kara Cooney, uh, when women ruled the world, six queens of Egypt. You know, I have a uh, an eleven year old daughter, and I'm you know I really do tell her all the time that she can you know she needs to just do what she wants and there are no there are no barriers but as as you're going through this what would be the most important thing i should tell my daughter that there are barriers 
<laughs> you should be very clear-eyed about this. She needs to know that there are barriers, and she needs to know that her femininity will be a barrier. And we need, as a society, to talk about our mistrust of females in power, our um, outright hostility in some cases. And as soon as they know that, that that exists, then it's it's something that can be transcended and can be discussed and talked about. As long as we don't discuss it and pretend that women are just equal to men in every way, shape, and form, then we, we don't have the conversation. Kara Cooney, when women ruled the world, uh, six queens of Egypt, uh, thank you very much. Uh, this is for, uh, this is was done through National Geographic. Do we have the, uh, are, we, are we having the National Geographic specials of the six queens? No specials yet, but I have an oh. exhibition happening at Nat Geo Central in D.C., and I'm doing that a speaking great. tour now. So I'm I'm doing Nat Geo live talks all over the country. Well, it's pretty exciting. I'll, that's fantastic. I'll argue for the specials for you if you'd like. We'll we'll get those produced right now. Let's oh, go. Oh, thanks. Let's see what happens. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate it. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at JeffyMRA. Facebook and Instagram is Jeff Fisher Radio. And um, subscribe. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't subscribed, um, please do so. And then rate, review it. Um, And I'll make it easy for you. Just rate it 20 stars and review it. Best podcast ever. And you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to think about it. You can make it nice and easy. Just subscribe, rate it 20 stars, review it. Best podcast ever. You're done. And know that I thank you very much for that. And then if you're still in the mood, share it with someone and say, hey, you should listen to this. Thank you. Share it with whoever you want. Whatever first name drops down in your email list, share it with them. So since it's uh, Black Friday, uh, animal-themed Friday, um, two stories that are a little frightening. Um, We had a story of a monkey uh, who snatched a baby from its mother's arms. It was in India, of course, but it didn't happen here in America, but it could. Uh, in a village uh, north of Agra in the Indian state of uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, which is, you know, south of New Delhi. You know, you knew that, though. I don't want to tell you something you didn't already know. So the main door of the house was open, and uh, the man's wife was, this lady was breastfeeding the son, and the, the father was quoted as saying, the monkey came in, grabbed the baby, and took off. I mean, what is going on when monkeys are just coming into homes and ripping kids out of their mother's arms? Something has gone wrong. And uh, sadly, they could never, they caught the monkey and, Got the baby, but it was too late. Very sad. We've got we've got to stop this horrific madness that's going on with monkeys stealing babies. There's also another horrible story. Another horrible story. It was written years ago called The Jungle Book. Animals stealing babies. It's horrible. Horrible. It's been going on for years and something has to be done. Also, another story. It's a little frightening. Just a little. A goat gives birth to furless, half-pig, half-human creature. Now, that's the way. That's the headline. All right? That's, that's the headline. But, look, 
it was just a half pig, half human creature is what it's being called. But what <laughs> the strange creature had shiny skin, no fur, a navel like a human. And of course, all the neighbors flocked to the farm. And then once they got there, they were scared out of their minds to see the mutant devil. Uh, I don't blame them. Uh, I would be very, very scared as well. Now, the good thing about this story, it didn't happen in India, but it did happen in the Philippines. So we in America are safe for a little while. I know it's Black Friday. You're over Thanksgiving. You're now thinking about, oh, I've had to shop. It's Christmas time. I've just heard horrific animal stories. What I need is a drink. Well, you're not alone. But I have a way for you to enjoy uh, a drink, cocktails, uh, and drink from now until Christmas and celebrate. Because I had the opportunity to talk to Michael P. Foley. Uh, Drinking with St. Nick. Now, he's also, uh, you'll hear in the interview, uh, the author of Christmas uh, Cocktails for Sinners and Saints. So he has a great uh, a great mixology of how you can enjoy the holidays with booze. Michael Foley. Uh, author of uh, Drinking with St. Nick. Uh, Michael, I noticed on the cover, before we get into the actual uh, you know, coverage of drinking with the saints uh, throughout history, um, Drinking with St. Nick is the uh, title and cover of your latest book, and I noticed that you didn't pick Santa Claus. You actually picked St. Nick. So is that right. that's the that's the that's the kind hint of we're not getting drunk with Santa Claus we're actually drinking with saints correct That's exactly it yes um, and it says drinking with Saint Nick not drinking with Santa Claus so <laughs> we wanted something that sort of was Santa Claus ish but right. still was kind of firmly recognizably Saint Nicholas so you uh, you got this. I know that you uh, you know you're the author of uh, you know drinking with saints. Uh, you know the sinner's guide to uh, a holy happy hour and uh, the uh, pol- the politically uh, incorrect guide to Christianity. And uh, you're down in Baylor at Baylor University spreading your your information to the youngins. I get it. Um, but what gave you the idea for this one? Well, drinking with the saints did very well. It uh, <laughs> the sales were strong and consistent and. There were calls for a second round. Oh, there so you go. We, uh, we came up with a holiday sequel. See, that's kind of the problem with drinking is there's always a call for a second round. You just don't go in for one drink. Once the appetite is whetted. Oh, boy, you aren't kidding. I find it fascinating. So your your idea, this, as an example, you talk about uh, Mother Cabrini's influence and uh, felt around the world in New York. But then you say to celebrate her, uh, you know, you want to uh, drink a Manhattan Yes. And so you're tying in, uh, what's your favorite uh, favorite drink, your favorite uh, cocktail to tie in uh, with what saint? Well, you mentioned Mother Cabrini, and one of our family favorites is the Manhattan, and that ties in very well with her because she did a lot of great work in that city. Yes, she did. Um, but uh, 
One of the things I'm really excited about with this new book is we have at least a dozen cocktails that have never been, fo- never before been in print. Wow. Some of them are original, some were out there, but never written down or, or committed to publication. And a couple of them I'm really happy with. We had Balcones Distillery, the famous whiskey makers here in Waco, yeah. make us three cocktails for the book, and they're all outstanding. And then there's another one called A White Lady, which I'm also very pleased with. So I got a couple favorites. Um, so what, what's, it, what's, in the, what, what's in The White Lady? The White Lady is actually a very old recipe, and I included it. I included a version of it in Drinking with the Saints, but a priest friend actually contacted me and said, you know, I tried your version, and it was, it was okay, but I know a better one. And so I thought, all right, I'll, I'll give this a shot. It's kind of labor-intensive. It, it requires uh, beating egg white for about five minutes wow. before you actually put it in the drink. But once you do, it's fantastic. It's egg white, gin, vodka, Cointreau, powdered sugar, and fresh lemon juice. Wow. And it is phenomenal. It's worth the effort. I mean, what if we just, what if we just, you know, lose the powdered sugar and the egg? Yeah, well, actually, that's what I did in the first version. Because I thought, who wants to beat an egg for five minutes on a drink? So I, I didn't, there, there are at least four different versions, and I included the simplest one because I didn't want too much hassle. But like I say, my friend convinced me otherwise. And he well, was he was like, a priest. Exactly. I mean, if a priest exactly. calls and says, you know, you ought to try this, that's ah, usually a good bet. Maybe you try it. So let me ask you a question. Uh, are you, one of the things uh, as you go through drinking with saints for the holidays and uh, to drink with St. Nick, like a lot of people have, uh, you know, the idea of uh, moving, uh, you know, moving uh, uh, the uh, animals closer to the uh closer to the baby Jesus on Christmas yep. day. And they have a, you know, the stupid elf on the shelf and uh, <laughs> whatever, whatever they do, you know, uh, uh, transformers in the trees, all that kind of stuff to celebrate Christmas. So are you saying that starting about, I don't know, now we should just drink ourselves silly through the holidays. <laughs> you might be tempted to do that given holiday pressure. I am. I, I, yes, I don't I recommend am. it. Uh, <laughs> no. And I, I felt slightly conflicted because the book has drinking suggestions for every day of the Advent and Christmas seasons. So I felt slightly convict, conflicted having uh, Advent uh, drinks. Right. So I thought, well, maybe Advent should be the time to sort of scale it back. And I do believe that, but I don't think that just having one drink a night is necessarily Mardi Gras. You know, so no. I, think, I think it is possible to be somewhat ascetical during Advent, but still enjoy an evening beverage. So that's why I, I did include it in good conscience. See that? See, that sounds good, Mike. And that's <laughs> and that sticking with the, well, you can just have one. That's right. You can just have one. But as about day 10 rolls around on that 12 days of Christmas, um, yeah. you're just hammered all day. Well, one of the things I do recommend is, is sort of restraining yourself during Advent and then to have a truly old-fashioned Christmas have the 12 days of Christmas, which go from December 25th to January 5th, um, the Feast of the Vigil of the Epiphany. Right. In the old days, people took off work, courts were closed, stores were closed. It was 12 days of merrymaking. 
not necessarily bacchanalia, but right. people just spent time with family. They had they had gotten all their chores out of the way in uh, uh, late December, and so it was it was time just to relax. And I think that was a pretty good model. That's not a bad model at all. I think you know we might actually uh, have families a little bit closer together if that were tried again. That's a good point. Um, so what uh, what's your favorite? You know, you, we talked a little bit about Manhattan, and I like the egg white. I, I like I like the sound of that with the with the powdered sugar. I'm a fan of sugar and eggs. So what the heck? Let's put some alcohol on it and give it a shot. But what's your favorite, Michael? After after all this, I mean, you've got you you've uh, you're drinking with Saint Nick, right? You're uh, you're you're uh, you're drinking with the the saints and the sinners. Uh, out of all that, would you go home and drink a light beer? I actually, my go-to is just a simple gin martini. Yeah. Yeah. That, but, uh, that's probably simple, potent, delicious. I like a martini. My dad was just, uh, I just need some vodka. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just need a, just give me, I just need some vodka. That's all. Mix it with whatever right. you want. I don't care. So it's a vodka. So, um, but, is it, is the book is for sale now. Absolutely. And I can get it uh, at, uh, if I want more information, can I get the books at uh, michaelfoley.info or do I need to go to uh, wherever books are generally sold? Wherever books are generally sold. I, I have a drinkingwiththesaints.com website. You can also like and follow our Drinking With The Saints Facebook page. And oftentimes we'll post new items, new ideas, new cocktails. Um, but obviously the book is sold on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, so forth. When uh, you said that the book, you have uh, many new drinks in it. Uh, are you posting some of those up on your Facebook page during the holidays? Or are you just saying, buy the book, Smarty Pants, and figure it out yourself? A little of both. Uh, there, there will be a couple surprises. <laughs> what, uh, what do you, uh, you know, in today's world, we have so much talk about uh, uh, drinking and driving. And there's such a, uh, such a spur on uh, people uh, driving under the influence. But really, uh, you, if you think ahead and are drinking responsibly and even with moderation or without moderation, you should be able to uh, transport yourself without uh, harming others. Very easy. Absolutely. And it's gotten so much easier with Uber. Yes. That uh, has made a huge difference, I think, in hasn't the culture. It? I, I really, it really has. And it doesn't make any sense that someone... I mean, I get the uh, I get the thought of uh, well, I can do it; it doesn't matter. I, I guess, but right. it, there's no there really is no call for it in today's world, no question. So, I know we have your your, your favorite is go to gin. I'm just looking to see how much do you have any do you have any beer in here, or is oh, yeah. it just booze? No, no, it's it's wine and beer as well. I, I counted up all the suggestions, and it's 445. Oh, wow. wine and cocktail suggestions in the book. Oh, I see. Oh, and I, I just flipped to uh, page uh, 109, by the way. And uh, it's Christmas punch for children. And uh, so we've covered some of that as well. I like it very much. A couple of non-alcoholic beverages for the little ones during the holidays, though most of it does focus on the strong side. Right. Well, I know, but it's good to have, you know, give the kids something to drink and pretend. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, you've got to create alcohol drinking sometime, Michael. That's right. <laughs> Michael Foley, thank you very much for joining us. I hope uh, I hope everybody uh, gets a copy of the book and has uh, some some fun over Christmas and over the holidays in drinking with Saint Nick. And I also hope that uh, they can maybe celebrate with the family and uh, you know maybe come a little bit closer. And if it takes a, a new drink from Michael Foley, then so be it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it.
All right, enjoy yourselves. Have a good time this weekend. I know we're coming back to work on Monday. Everybody's back thinking, ugh, we got to go back. We got to get all this stuff done. And, uh, you know, not that it means anything to me, but the wife will be wanting to get all the Christmas stuff up. And we've already started getting all the Christmas stuff up. So if you fought that battle to not get the Christmas stuff up pre Thanksgiving, <laughs> <laughs> it's post Thanksgiving, so hope you have fun putting up your Christmas stuff this weekend. Bless your heart. Oh, 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 oh